are entering the take-up, a place to gather when the film is over. I'm your host, Joshua Ray, and I'm here with my co-host and managing editor of thetakeup.com, Andrew Wyatt. Hey, Andrew. Hello. Today, we are processing Black Girl, Andrew's pick for the last episode in the new Black film canon. First, we're going to talk about some Quicksilver titles, and Elemental, Asteroid City, Past Lives. Then we're going to talk about Usman Semben's seminal 1966 film. Finally, we're going to break down the list and make more recommendations in the new Black film canon. And finally, we'll have one more thing. So, Andrew, is Elemental... Elemental? Like, I I don't know. It it looks um, like not a movie. (laughs) (laughs) It's not great. man. It is definitely late period to Pixar slump. Yeah, sort of epitome of. I, I have the same issue with this film that I had with the Cars movie, which is that I find it so conceptually deranged and poorly thought out that, and I don't, and it that seems like a weird thing to say about kids movies, right? Like I get you it. Shouldn't say you have to think hard about movie, but Cars did the same thing to me, which is that my brain keeps spiraling off as I'm watching it and trying to understand how this universe, where these like Aristotelian elements, air, earth, fire, water which have like anthropomorphic people embodying those elements, how this universe exactly works. Um, And it doesn't really make a heck of a lot of sense. So there's something conceptually off about the whole thing that just sort of distracts you in the same way that like, if you start thinking about the Cars universe a little too hard, it starts seeming being strange. Or the dogma of soul or the way emotions (laughs) are also people. And you know what? I think... And I think that Pixar does excel at some high concept. Like Inside Out, I absolutely love. And so I think that the idea of a high concept animated film isn't inherently bad, but you have to think about it and create some kind of audience buy-in or something. And I think that what makes this doubly bad is it's just such a, it's such an unimaginative cliche ridden story it's so what is the story i don't i don't get story from trailers <laughs> yeah there is like the trailer is just a bunch of jokes right, right. sight gags um so it's a love story i guess um the main character is a fire lady fire girl and it's about her sort of star-crossed romance with a water guy water boy and it <sighs> I don't even I don't even know how to wrap my brain around it. So like imagine the a- avatar of the last airbender universe as explained by a three-year-old with some like Pokemon elements in there. And then like, oh, and it's a movie, the, the main conflict in the movie is about civil engineering. <laughs> um you are not selling me on it. <laughs> it's bad. It's and it's it's super like corny like they have one date like they they had they're like they hate each other they have one date and then then they love each other eternally like it's just it doesn't even make sense in a fairy tales romance sort of way it it isn't convincing or persuasive um there are elements that i like i do think it has some really cool design there's some great wide sort of shots that are sort of eye-popping of this elemental city that reminded me a lot of the the more visually splendid stuff in coco Mm. um and the character designs themselves are kind of cool. The fire people in particular are sort of, I can easily see like why the fire people took like a year of animators trying to figure out how to make like liquid anthropomorphic flame work as character design. 
Um, and the fire people in particular have a really cool like architecture. They all their buildings are like clay oven style, look like clay ovens. But there's some weird racial subtext in this that I I think is intentional, but like they didn't think it through entirely. The the fire people are very obviously presented as like South Asian or Middle Eastern coded, and the rest of the elemental people are not quote unquote so white, I guess. And like there, the fire people are presented as like the the interloping immigrants to this big multicultural city. I could write a whole dissertation on how like everything that Zootopia did right, this movie kind of fumbles. And there's a non-binary character in it. Have you heard? Yeah, blink and you'll miss it. Blink and you'll miss it. There's also a pair of water lesbians who actually get a line. So I guess happy pride, but. <gasps> Andrew, they're lesbians. So, uh, have you been watching the other two? Have you ever watched it on I, Max? No, I haven't. I've heard people been talking <laughs> you about it. Are you aware of the episode where the uh, the the male protagonist uh, is getting cast in a Disney film to play a a queer coded character that is a big blob of nothing like a big green booger and he has to sell its queerness it alienates himself and not one week later did we get non-binary <laughs> piece of icicle or something I love right. it you know what go off Disney get us um, what about past lives? Is past lives a a a better love story? Uh, in a way, yeah. Um, so this is a movie, first time feature by a director, a playwright. Who actually, I don't think she's ever made anything before. No shorts, no features. She's a she's a playwright and writer. Celine Song. Um, she's a Canadian uh, Korean playwright living in the United States, working in New York. Um, she wrote this very semi autobiographical film about. Um, a sort of maybe romance between two characters. So the premise of the film is kind of ingenious. It's um, it's kind of got some Richard Linklater before trilogy vibes. Um, these two kids who are like maybe like 12 years old at the turn of the millennium, um, they're sort of best friends, maybe developing into a crush, middle schooler version of a crush. Um, right as those things are still maybe starting to happen, they sort of get separated, um, the girl's family uh, goes to the United States move, or moves to Canada permanently uh, and they sort of don't speak to each other for like 10, 12 years. They reconnect via the internet like 12 years later when they're in their 20s, they're trying to get their career started. They sort of reignite whatever crush, proto-crush they had. They have a very intense but short, long distance romance over like video calls and phones and texts and emails and so forth. And then the movie sort of really picks up 12 years later after their sort of maybe long distance romance doesn't really go anywhere, he's gonna be in New York. He's coming into New York from Seoul and he wants to meet up for two days. And that's sort of the premise of the film. The film stars Greta Lee, who you may know from like the morning show and Russian doll as sort of a comedic supporting character. Here she gets to be in the sort of romantic dramatic lead and she's amazing in it. Actually, all the leads are strong. It's her, uh, the German Korean actor, Yo Tio and John Legaro from First Cow, who you may know um, from uh, first cow. Um, all of the first really cow comes up every single episode of this series. because it's awesome. Because it's <laughs> right. awesome. I know. I know. Um, no, I like seeing him and other things. Um, so it's sort of a. I mean, if at the plot level, the plot of the movie is that two people walk along the Brooklyn waterfront, visit the Statue of Liberty, and have a meal out. That's the plot of the movie. Like in terms of like what happens mechanically, but the genius of it is that so much of it is about what's going on. And Greta Lee's character Nora's head and her 
it's interesting. It's a very mellow, gentle, in, in, introspective sort of film. So there's nothing about the film's style that codes you to believe that there's going to be a big dramatic upheaval. Greta, who's now married to a white man, she's not going to, you never get the sense that she's going to leave her husband for this guy. It's more about her trying to reassess who she was, the little girl that she once was, all the changes that happened in her life through the lens of this man she's only known like once briefly in her 20s and then once briefly when they were tweens and how he's staying in Korea and her moving to Canada slash the United States has sort of changed their, has sort of diverged them, but also they still share an obvious like intense connection. It's a very introspective film. Um, beautifully shot, great sound, great sort of indie lo-fi soundtrack. Is um, it the best film of the year? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, if anyone's there, heard about it. It was in, it played Sundance and it immediately was, from Sundance was the hottest ticket. And then mm -hmm. since then people have, and then have written about it as the best or one of the best films of the year. It is, it is right now it is in my top five to top 10, I would say. Um, I don't know if it's the best, but um, it's certainly a film the longer I dwell on it, the more impressive it becomes, particularly as a first time feature, you know, Mm -hmm. It's the kind of screen, the screenplay is really where it's at. That's how, that's understand, as I understand it, that's how songs basically sold the film to A24, which she gave him a screenplay, they loved it, and they basically gave her a couple million dollars to make this movie. Well, they had some movie. money behind one of her play previous to this. Yeah, yeah, that thinks that makes sense. But um, it's really a great screenplay. It, 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 it's the kind of script that really only comes from a combination of lived experience. So there's definitely like a semi-autobiographical element to it. But also a lot of like really trenchant insight about the way people think and talk and the way that emotions work and the way that we as people, like from the specificity of this character, Nora's circumstances, we get some very universal insights about how we think about our lives and paths not taken and the people we are versus like how time just sort of just keeps churning forward and making us into people that would have been unrecognizable to us 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. It's a, a really great sort of exactly what you want out of sort of lo-fi indie drama. I had to say to call it a romance because I think the movie signals pretty early on that it's not like these two characters are going to run away with each other. There's not going to be any baby you're going to miss that train moment um, oh, forthcoming. You just said the magic words. How <laughs> dare you do that? Also, don't give that context. Like You can no. still spoil that though. No, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But I do think it's it is it is a, a film, one of my favorite films of this year so far. Um, Very good. Uh, putting it up alongside uh, another film that I've talked about previously, which is Rye Lane, which is is going for very a very intense uh, before sunrise, like heady romantic vibe. So it's interesting to sort of lay those two films alongside each other. What about Asteroid City, which we both saw, right? Correct. We did. Yeah, yeah. I kind of loved it. Where is you're it? Making fa you're making faces. <laughs> is it in the top five? The top five of the year? Yeah. It might be battling for it. Yeah, I think so. All right. I have it's to my number one. Your number one film of 2023 so far. Wow. Yeah. Now, this isn't to shortchange anything Asteroid City is doing or how monumental I think it is, because I think it is. Yeah. Um, this has been a... I haven't seen a lot of great movies this year. <laughs> Behind the scenes, we're we're doing a halfway 
2023 thing and i've yet to respond to the message because i'm like i better go watch some good movies <laughs> i'm i'm with you i've seen some things Sorry. i like but it's been it's been a i don't i don't even think it's necessarily been a slow movie year i think it's just i'm way behind yeah, I think I'm way behind too. But anyway, um, Asteroid City is one of my favorite Andersons. I'm not, Wes Anderson films, I should say. I don't mm. think we said that yet. Um, I responded to it on so many different levels. Um, not only is it, I think, his... He has perfected his dollhouse aesthetic, right? But within this narrative um, and within this film it is to such great ends. Like he's deploying it to such great thematic ends that you sit there and look at a shot and really just chew on it for a very long time, but he doesn't really let you because it is um, kind of a, you know, late Anderson rat-a-tat-tat uh, screwball l- language he's inherited and also mm-hmm. physical comedy to set it up. Uh I don't even it said it. I can't. No, I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try. Okay. I'm gonna try. It, it is what you've seen in the trailer. It is about this convention of, 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 uh, just a handful of very smart youngsters interested in scientific ventures, and that they get stuck in this desert town called Asteroid City. It's named that because, um early in the 20th century an asteroid has landed and created a crater in the middle of the city and i won't go any further there but this is actually what we are seeing is a play being performed in 1955 and the whole thing is structured around brian cranston playing like an American playhouse television uh, host who is explaining the background of the play that you're watching on television, but the actual film nested within it is a widescreen, technicolor, very mid-century color-coded science fiction comedy. Did I do it? I think so. It is, it is, it does share with Grand Budapest Hotel the sense of like meta nested narratives, but I think almost like Grand Budapest almost plays like a practice run of that conceit because it's so neat. Because in Grand Budapest, it's so neat. It's done as these like neat bookends where we go, we nest in and then back out to get this. In this movie, he's sort of thrown out that playbook entirely and we're going completely freeform and moving back between three or depending on how you look at it, four different levels of reality. To the point where I have to sometimes stop myself and calibrate and say, now, which Jason Schwartzman am I watching here? <laughs> and that is entirely the point. This is, if anything, other than being a cosmological, philosophical, um, just uh, kind of, what's the next word that I wanted? Soup of a cosmic big, gumbo. <laughs> yeah. Big ideas about the way we live, the way we live with each other. Ultimately, it's it's a salute to performance. Mm-hmm. And not only the kind of performance that is a profession for these characters and some of the characters they play. I'm talking about Scarlett Johansson, who mm-hmm. is a major star who plays a major star. And... Um, uh, 
but performance as a means of survival too like Mm. a a sort of flight or fight response it's a fight response for these people and the artistic endeavor and searching for answers to questions and never really understanding and um i think you could wade through it and find that there are some sort of nihilistic ideas in it but ultimately it um i found it a very hopeful film about yeah. the connective fabric between us and our art yeah i think so um i definitely think it is Anderson's most explicitly film that's most explicitly about existential terror in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so many of his films have had characters who have suffered uh, loss. There's a lot of like orphans and widowers, not so many widows, but a lot of widowers and orphans, people who have lost somebody close to them that informs a lot about their psychology. But this is maybe his first film that I think is going beyond the personal psychology of that and really delving into the idea of how a sudden death in the family or somebody you're close to is really just one piece of a larger puzzle or conundrum of being a human being. The idea of that there, there is a constant mortal terror about something you can't understand or can't wrap your mind around that throws your whole understanding about your life and the story of your life into, into confusion. Um, I don't understand the play. It's like a mantra that keeps coming up, right? In this right. film. And and the resolution of the answer to that is mm. perfect. Right. Yeah. But there's definitely something there. It, feel, it feels like, so a lot of, again, a lot of Anderson's characters in his previous films have been artists uh, who, who take their art very seriously. But I do think you're right in that this film feels like maybe the closest he's ever come to making a movie about the essential nature of art, like how important mm-hmm. it is to the human existence, which is really fascinating and uh, done very effectively, I think. But um, yeah, you but can't. Also what's the, that? What's the other credo that you can't? You can't wake up. You if can't you don't wake go up to sleep. if you don't go to sleep. Yeah, which, which is, I've which been is a great. Thinking about so much <laughs> and and then trying to really because it sounds very um like like Red Scare American Theater Lee Strasberg like yeah. all of these things the setting that he's in. Well, Willem Dafoe uh, playing the Lee Strasberg insert character. Yeah, and there are a lot of corollaries of people like Scarlett Johansson seems to be playing like with the biographical details seems to be playing Betty Davis and Marilyn Monroe there's some explicit um callbacks to Marilyn Monroe and and like uh characters keep talking about her character as she's such a gifted comedian but uh (laughs) no one will ever give her a chance um there's like and of course, it is jam-packed and stuffed, and maybe even overstuffed, but to, to just the greatest thrill um, with, with ideas, visual ideas. Um, his, the, the use of language is as uh, uh, adept as it was in French Dispatch, a film about writing and language. And just, I am, I can't wait yeah. to see it again. Yeah, I, I think I, I definitely need to see it at least two, maybe three more times. I do think that even if you set all that stuff aside, if you are a type of person who likes Wes Anderson aesthetic, for lack of a better word, this is a real, I think this in particular is a real treat. There's something particularly going on with the Asteroid City 
film within the play within the film that um is sort of fascinating like it the whole thing looks like a faded looks tech, like technicolor post it looks real uh-huh. but it looks like a faded technicolor postcard from about you know 70 years ago it's strange it's strange looking the yeah like the the contrast uh between light and dark is very like low but then the the backdrop it's a complete 3d setting but the backdrop of it also looks like a painted mat set like it's it's so special and but it just still feels really real and lived in that's something i always forget about wes anderson is his his people they are people and um i i think it's easy to think about the the memetization like the the ai shit that's going around and like creating the wes anderson aesthetic everyone's always in the middle no it's not all about that it is about the people i mean that yeah there there is a criticism that i hear a lot of anderson's characters that they are stiff and cold and not really human and i don't I don't begrudge people who don't like really connect to his films because I do think that it's sort of like, how do you, somebody either connects to his films or they don't. Like, I don't know how to argue that. But for me personally, I've always found his characters very soulful, um, yes. almost to the point of like parody sometimes, like intentional parody at some point, like how how morose and soulful they are. Well, that's yeah, uh, two great films. Film, are, great film. Great. I just, yeah, it's something I keep, I keep thinking about. I can't wait to see it again. Oh. Hey, you know what's a great film? <laughs> the film you picked for the last episode in our new black film, new black film canon program. That's Osman Semban's Black Girl from uh just i don't know maybe the best film we've ever covered let's get to it andrew really wow yeah okay so i've been thinking about it this is probably the most revolutionary film we've covered um i can think of some that i like a little bit more maybe because i have a longer history like a longer runway with them happy together maybe what else (laughs) for me this is um this is like soul shattering and just um yeah monumental stuff and it's an hour long anyway andrew (laughs) we're we're on to the last episode in our new black film canon program Mm -hmm. and um first one we covered was with elliot collins uh spider-man into the spider-verse and then you know we had the the sequel came out and uh, good timing good timing there and then i picked um the watermelon woman cheryl dunny's um kind of canonly queer concept comedy do you, do you like that i don't like that anyway and then you've picked black girl a film i had seen before in a film that i love but um you hadn't seen it so no you you wanted to dive 
right into that. Why that one in particular? Because we're going to talk a little later about the list as a whole. We haven't really done that yet. We're going to make some recommendations from it. Maybe some things we are looking forward to seeing. Um, but you picked this one. Why? Um, well, I the only other Osman film I had seen is his last film, Mulad, which I think is probably true of a lot of people. If you've seen any of his movies, mm -hmm. a lot of people would probably say they've seen that one. Yeah, uh, which I recall liking a lot. In 2004, I remember Roger Ebert yeah. wrote about it um, mm -hmm. and had it in his top. He put it on his year. great, great movies list. He put it yeah. on his great movies list, I think, before he, before yeah. he passed. So um, I had heard, I, so I've heard a lot about Osman as a filmmaker, as a sort of seminal figure in um, sort of African, sub-Saharan African cinema as being one of the sort of the giants. Um, I and again, I'd only seen one of his films. So part of what I wanted to do with this new Black Film Canon series that we've done is sort of just pick, do a blind pick, like pick something that I know I should have seen by now and, and seen it. And I think, so he he's a filmmaker. Here's a filmmaker that I've heard about. Here's a film that I've heard about. I actually know anything about it. I just heard it and knew that it was very well regarded. Um, I also feel like Senegalese, and French Senegalese and Senegalese American film is kind of having a moment in the last five years. Um, I've seen a lot of Senegalese and Senegalese adjacent films that I've really enjoyed that I think have been really excellent. So I feel like it's the right time to maybe um, go back from films like Atlantics, St. Omer, uh, we talked last year, uh, Saloum, which is a Congolese Senegalese film that I saw recently and really loved, um, and including a Senegalese American film. So there was a film last year um, Nanny, a horror film called Nanny, which has a lot of parallels with this oh, film. There's a lot to this, um, yeah. Nikiatu Jusu, uh, Senegalese American filmmaker who was making horror films. So um, it feel, just felt like the right time. Yeah, Semben, I think, as I understand, I am no um, sub-Saharan uh, uh, film uh, expert whatsoever, um, but just from what I understand, He's the one. He's mm -hmm. sort of the one everyone traces the uh, film movement that occurred around the time of a lot of the um, um, African independence that was happening uh, in the really 61, 63. Uh, and he seems to be the one that everyone says is like the well, is like the starting point for their film culture. And everything sort of spins off from what he did, whether that's hyperbole or or not. Um, he's certainly someone I'm interested into watching everything. Access is part mm. of the problem. Um, Mulare is on Canopy right now. Another one of his films, Mandavi, is on Criterion Channel and on a disc. Um, but there are other key films that are sort of unavailable, either digitally or on, you know, good quality discs out there. Um, but this one is available on the Criterion channel and probably get it on Max, Canopy, wherever they have, uh, Janice has associations. HBO with. too, I think. I think yeah. HBO too, yeah. On the disc, it comes with his debut a narrative short called uh, Baram Steret, which is about a a cart driver um it's a little bit more uh, didactic or instructive about his 
um, philosophy than Black Girl, mm. which I think is pretty, you know, plain, like, po-faced, <laughs> like, this laying all of his cards out film. But it it is sort of key to understanding his indictment of human nature and of the systems that we've created and specifically of colonialism as this man travels through Dakar in the outskirts of Dakar um, and pretty much gives of himself to death almost. Um, <clears throat> it's not quite as dour as that or dour as Black Girl. Um, but so this is a huge thing that a Senegalese man, an artist, um, who, who was a novelist, really, he was known for being a novelist, uh, made a film. And the reason he goes to film is that he sees that a lot of his target audience is illiterate, but they respond to the imported films that are, that are coming into the area. Um, so they're watching like mm -hmm. a lot of French cinema, a lot of colonialist cinema at the time. And he is someone who studied Marxist theory. Um, he actually, he was a dock worker and picked up a, like a bag of rice or coffee so heavy that he broke his spine. And in recovery was when he came into this Marxist ideology and found like, um, you know, ideas for the people and started thinking about African independence. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Baram Starrett is the, and, and we should say that just English speaking white dudes trying to say, uh, you know, French, Senegalese, other African nations. Wolof, I think, is the language most of, his, most of his movies in, yeah. Yeah, and uh, gets the money to make Black Girl really as, um, as sort of the centerpiece of the first uh, Black Arts Festival uh, held in Dakar. Um, his, mm -hmm. really his like home city, even though he spent a lot of his life in France, some of it in Moscow, and came back to it uh, later in life when he was making these films. And it also becomes sort of an international sensation on an art house level. And when we're talking 1966, um, art house probably even means a little bit more than it does these days because of the segmentation of everything, entertainment. But um, yeah, so that's a, a little bit of the setup. And I think it's important to mm -hmm. set it up because what's happening within the film is so much about about the like the ethos the world that he's trying to become a filmmaker in even though it's not explicitly about those things so Andrew will you set up the film proper yeah so this like a lot of and we we're gonna get into this I'm sure but like a lot of French cinema of the 1960s we sort of come at this film orthogonally like we have to watch it carefully to understand the situation that's unfolding. But as you sit through the first 15 minutes, you can sort of grasp the the nut of the plot, which is that um, this Senegalese woman, um, Joanna, who has come from Dakar to the French Riviera, is my understanding. Yeah. Um, like Cannes is within a stone's throw away from where she ends up. Seems to be um, across specifically the bay. She's following, yeah. yeah, specifically she's following her French employers from Senegal, from Dakar, white 
French colonial employers back to some kind, I get the impression that it's not a permanent relocation, it's some kind of temporary, not, not exactly a holiday, but some kind of break that they're taking, they're going back to France for a while, and she's in she, the idea is that she's going to follow them there. While in Dakar, she was working as a nanny. A lot of this is sort of interspersed between present timeline of her in France and sort of flashbacks interlaced between uh, those sequences where we get a bit more about the lead up to, to what brought her to France. Um, so Joanna comes with the expectation that she's going to be a nanny, but when she gets there into kind of like their little apartment in the Riviera, like she's basically just doing cleaning and cooking. Children aren't even there for, for a long time. Eventually they show up. Um, and her employers who, interestingly, the white man and the white young, relatively young white man and woman who employ her are just referred to as Madame and Monsieur in the film. They're never actually given names. Um, they're just sort of the authority figures. Uh -huh. um, they turn kind of, particularly the the wife slash mother, Madame, Madame, she kind of turns hostile and controlling even more so than she was in Dakar. Once, once Joanna arrives in Paris, she doesn't, once she arrives in France, she doesn't allow her to leave the apartment. Have I missed anything? I mean, like, I don't want to give too much away. I, we, we're doing a spoiler cast. So I guess it makes sense to eventually talk about where it goes. But that's sort of the premise, right? That's the setup. Yeah, that's the premise is that she she comes under a different idea of what she'll be doing. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it, it's interesting. This was a novella that Semben had written just a couple of years prior to making this film. Um, and it it has the framing device of Sunset Boulevard. <laughs> so right. the, the short story, the, the novella does, yeah. Yes, so she's dead, um, she's committed suicides different in the book. I have not read the book. Um, this is all just what I've learned from research about this film. Um, and then you find out, well, how how is her downfall? This is structured differently because you're introduced to Joanna um, as this just striking, beautiful woman, fashionable, modern woman arriving to France. And, um, you know, there are sort of verite shots of the boat and her arriving, people looking at the camera, and she certainly sticks out. This just beautiful, tall, slender Black woman um, in, like, modern, but African-style dress. And it's sort of instantly off <laughs> when she arrives and she starts cooking and cleaning you don't get um external dialogue of this character you only get internal monologue of her mm -hmm. so what we're watching is and Semben has like this style that's um especially with his actors drained of like archness or or really a, any performativity and so if you were to watch this on mute you, you you know you probably wouldn't get a lot of what's happening because a lot of it is just that internal dialogue versus watching just someone performing it's sort of bersonian in that way um but then of course you get that flashback that she was looking to get out she had been indoctrinated in these ideals that white culture or something is something to aspire to. Um, or, or at least that this, or at least that this job, this employment was a key to unlocking something. 
something else, right? Yeah, she was speaking about prosperity or a better life or maybe just something not the car, like because she speaks in those flashbacks. She speaks in voiceover about her mindset during the flashbacks, like in the past tense as how idealistic I was. What was I thinking at the time? And she talks about, you know, really simple sort of pleasures like going out to stores and wearing nice clothes and going to the and beach that's how and she was sold to it by yeah. madame is that oh you you won't even be able to imagine the beautiful dresses um mm-hmm. being out and seeing it but she is cloistered in this very small apartment yeah. with um sparsely decorated except <laughs> this key uh, element, visual element in this film is a mask from uh, where Duran's from. She actually bought it off a young child who was playing with it in the street. And yeah, can we talk it... about that for a second? Can we talk about yeah. Because I want to talk specifically about how the film introduces that mask in the because of because of the way the film is structured, how that mask moves to the film is really fascinating because we first see it as viewers hanging on the apartment in the Riviera when Shawana walks in. She makes a like, mm-hmm. visual note of it and the camera draws our attention to it, right? It's mm-hmm. only after that in the film that we rewind to learn that this mask has traveled from Dakar, from their house or apartment in Dakar in Senegal, and that the mask was originally a some kind of like thanks for hiring me gift that Joanna buys from a kid on the street and then gives to the to the white couple that they then brought to the Riviera. So it has this weird sort of boomerang effect where now we have additional context for what what it means to have it. Initially, I just thought of, oh, it's a it's kind of like a weird colonial thing that the white people have an African mask hanging on the wall of their apartment. But then it boomerangs and becomes something much bigger, right? But they have they have a lot of that. So they have like colonialist African figures and paintings. They've got other masks um, in their Dakar uh, apartment. But so why does she give that as a gift? Because she's already employed by them and understands that within their home, they have all of these traditional African elements that white people still love to put up all over their walls as home decoration. She Mm -hmm. understands that that is a way in, that is to get in their good graces, a a gift Mm -hmm. for giving me the opportunity to come with you. I will share with you a part of my culture. It's so incredibly, it's it's this contradictory process by which people um, stand against, but also agree to uh, the act of colonialism because of the indoctrination. And you end up following that mask. I think one of the great shots in cinema is Juana, with her hands up against that mask. And uh, Semben, his, his, he has no artifice in his aesthetic either. I, I, they're very thoughtful and purposeful and exacting um, compositions often, um, but there's an austerity to it. Um, she's white background wall. You've got that mask. That's the only thing hanging on that wall. And it's, her and her shadow, and she turns and looks not into the camera. It's not like a confrontational thing. She looks sort of away from the camera 
as she turns. So it's not confrontation, but it is an opportunity for us to, to be let in and to understand a little bit of her psychology, even beyond her narration. It's the psychology of what the fuck did I do? Yeah, what am I and doing here? What am I doing here? And an unfair placement of guilt on the colonized. Mm. The, this movie's 60 minutes, 57, 59 minutes long. It's less than an hour. Barely a feature. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh it has just moments like that that I think are are so strikingly beautiful and beautiful in the way that they're just they tell the, the absolute truth about a situation. Um, yeah, if you can't tell, like, I'm completely enamored. I'm ready to obsess <laughs> over this man, even after having watched a documentary that revealed him to not be a very nice man at times in uh, his life, well, but complicated man. Wah, wah. Ma- right, male right, directors. Right. <laughs> the, we we that, get that postscript on pretty much everybody, everybody born before <laughs> Well, to, really to that point, it's it's that he was just sort of a, a son of a bitch, like kind of a rude, yeah. <laughs> you know. And um, he did in making this, part of his point in making it was I want to make cinema, Black cinema for Black people. I want to make African cinema for African people. There are so many national cinemas um, that have been uh, weaponized for revolution. He saw it as a tool for revolution. And he specifically wanted to make this story in his story because he felt like you know, there's independence, there's revolution in the Francophone uh, African countries. But what was being left out was our female counterparts, specifically. He knew that um, in order for revolution to work, it's all or nothing. Failed revolutions fail because they do not understand the human rights. And there's a thread of... there's a thread of that skepticism towards black African male revolutionary spirit in po- politics that runs through this film. It's not intense, but you can see it. And there's, there's a key scene where Joanna sort of just whimsically walks along a monument to the revolutionary war dead, the Senegalese revolutionary war dead and her maybe boyfriend lover at the time kind of blows up and says what are you doing that's sacrilege oh my god get down get down and then there's a there's just little markers like how her boyfriend has this has like these revolutionary uh anti-colonial slash marxist flags hanging in his you know he's he's constantly smoking he's constantly talking about anti-colonialism and there's this sense there's this sense of like up until this point or at this moment even the revolutionary movement the anti-colonial movement in Africa is a male-dominated space. It's a right. it's, it's it's governed by you know young young idealistic hot-headed men chain-smoking and talking about the revolution. It's there's no place for women like Joanna in that world or in that movement right now. Right now, and it's not like emphatic, but there's definitely a thread of that that runs through this this the skepticism about the way that she's a, that women like her and her specifically are not even a part of that conversation. Part of 
this independence movement was had so many strings attached to France specifically. Mm-hmm. It, it was violent, but it wasn't as violent as what would come later in these revolutions whenever these um, men really, the African upper class came into power, the, the bourgeois, and they came into power. And what ends up happening is that there, many of them are great monsters. There's great infighting and revolution on civil war in a lot of these nations. Um, but yeah, all the, and he would specifically later uh, start making films about that. And but this one, yeah, you can see all the the seeds of that. He was just really aware and knew how to very succinctly carry across that point, but that point that carries so much weight in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just no other when I think about like the films that I respect the most or I love the most, I think about the the music of them. And I think about how unique the music is to me. There's no other film that feels like this. Um, even Mandabi, his other feature that I've seen, it shares a lot of DNA with this. Um, it has this sort of um, fable-like telling and Mandabi's an interesting sort of satire or indictment of um, <clears throat> capitalism creeping into these nations and, uh, you know, and the French influence being ultimately uh, poisonous. And it's about a, a man who gets a money order from his nephew working in Paris. And then the process of him trying to cash that money order. Yeah, it's bad. Um, uh, but, you know, his films had this like fable like uh, uh, unfolding. Um, this one in particular, it feels so dreamy to me. Mm-hmm. But I get caught up in the images and they stand in like stark opposition often to the text of the thing or even the subtext of the thing. There is a lot of use of not only visuals, but also sound and music in an ironic the, way, right? Just yeah, the there is. Yeah, that's the, the term. It's just the irony and the juxtaposition of its aesthetic values and the actual storytelling at hand. Because um, there's a, austerity to the storytelling and his aesthetic, but it's all very purposely designed. Um yeah, this is just one of those films that feels like nothing else to me. I mean, you say austere, but like one of the things I bought, I actually plumped down the money for the Criterion disc. And uh, one of the things I first wrote down in my notes was I, as the movie starts was unbelievable 4K restoration. Like this is a movie that you, I think this sort of fault, this is a great example of like, why would, you know, maybe a, a, a non-cinephile might ask, like, why would I care about a, 35 millimeter black and white film from 70 years ago. Like wh- why does it need a 4K restoration? If you watch this on a, I watched this on my um, my new 4K OLED television and it is Hell phenomenal. Hell yeah, me too. <laughs> it is phenomenal looking. Like it is a gorgeous film. And so like, I do want to say, I do want to emphasize that like, yet yeah, it is austere in the sense that like compared to a hyper stylized film that we 
another kind of hyper stylized film yes but like it it's a luxurious film to watch in another respect yes and it's design there's an austerity but it has the a textural richness to it and especially with close-up and the faces even so there's this ostentatious moment where madame and joanna are like fighting over the mask the brian de palma shot the brian de palma shot well how'd you know i was gonna bring that up um where they're they're twirling but very you know call back to wes anderson center frame sort of a stillness they're like, like holding it, the mask together almost like they are yeah. dancing like together around um but it, it is point. yeah it's very sort of stylized for this film and then it they stop and it stops on madame and monsieur comes in through the door through um the left side of the door frame that's behind her after it's still and it's just like the tiniest moment like that that um i think like everything comes down to power and uh, the use of power, the the abuse of power, and even just a small shot like that, that with these two like looming figures that are your ultimate downfall approaching from, I don't, yeah, there's just great textural element to this. Yeah, and I I, I want to talk a little bit about this film in the context of so the, again this is the first time I've ever seen it. I hadn't read a plot summary, I knew nothing about it going in other than the name and who the filmmaker was. Um, the one of the first things I wrote down in the opening minutes was this is commentary on the new wave while the new wave is happening, and I I don't want to divorce this from its af- inherent Africanness or talk about it. And I think particularly this filmmaker goes on to make some very essentially African films, but like so much of this to me feels, if you read his biography, that he spent all this time in France, that he spent time, he wrote like six Marxist novellas, novels, like eventually he had a real Renaissance life even before he was was a filmmaker. He had like, Mm -hmm. we we should all live a life as rich as this guy did before Mm -hmm. he started making his first movie. But he brings all that experience. He brings some familiar, obviously from some deep familiarity with French cinema, not just its history, but what's happening concurrently at this exact moment and brings it back to Senegal with him and makes this movie that feels in some ways, I mean, it maybe feels like maybe five years out of steps. It feels like 1960, 1961 film. But again, 1966 is the year of masculine feminine. It's the year of the nun. Like the, the new wave is happening still while he's making this movie that feels like an African version of a new wave film. And, and some so- folks might say Novel Vague is already sort of waning at this point. Right, because but it's so, but like it's still Godard and like- Truffaut, like Truffaut's over in America now. Godard's like entering his Marxist Leninist period, but it's the heat of it. In the heat, the heat of, of it. it is still Do there. Do you want a really good You know what I wrote little- down? You know what I wrote down was Revolutionary Road. And by that, I mean, David Uh Wright's incredible 1961 novel. It's a movie, it's a novel. He made a movie about it later, which which was okay. But the novel isn't great and incendiary. It's a critique of the 1950s written in 1961. And that's the vibe I get from this. This is a film that's offering a critique and a new portal into something while that thing is still sort of 
happening or fading out. Like it's 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 so timely and it's so there's something about that in and of itself, independent of everything else, that feels very radical to me. And he's making his first films. You're gonna love this metaphor. Mm-hmm. He gets the literal scraps of a film from his French compatriots in the film industry in order to make his films. And that makes sense. And yeah. the other thing I wrote down is Mansoor looks and acts and dresses like a Godard character. Like that yeah, is inten- but, that is so intentional, right? You know, why does that man look like that? He's very French. And, oh, but, there's something, but there's something revolutionary about that too. Not just, oh, I'm I'm not in an aping, I'm aping a style or an aesthetic in the sense, but in the sense that if we're making a, an anti-colonial black film in 1966, maybe the logic is that we use a crusty old French couple who have been in Senegal for 50 years, right? The, the sort of the old bastions of racism and colonialism. But what does this filmmaker do? He makes them yeah, young yeah. and stylish. They read L. They, you know, they're, although I do think it's interesting <laughs> that, the, that there's this idea of, French culture has sort of seeped down into the French colonies. If you look, even the black characters are reading like mm-hmm. L and Mary Claire. Mm-hmm. But what is sort of the 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 Mansour, the the bastion of white masculinity? The only things we see him read are comic books and skin mags. He's not reading intellectual. He's not reading like the great heights of French intellectualism. He's sleepy. He's napping and smoking and reading skin mags and comics. It, yeah, and I, I, that's such a great point that they're, they are the people who say, we have Black friends. I have Black friends. You know what I mean? Like, we're the with ma- it. But the Madame does not look like what you envision as like an old racist colonial woman. She looks like a sure. stylish woman in 1966. She her sort makeup of like her Brigitte Bardot, right? Right, her hair, her makeup. Turns out to be a terrible racist, by the way. Yeah, yes, but, but like that's the, whole thing but that's is, the conceit, right? That's the conceit. Right. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is that whiteness equaling power, ultimately, it's going to corrupt. And you will use it to any means um, in order to have your little comfortable life. And to the point where this culture is so dominant, either by force or in this method that you're talking about in the way cultural hegemony yeah yes and um so through that process you have your um people who you're colonizing buying into it of course i want to go and be their nanny um i i don't even know that i want to like do we want to talk about the end or the climax of the story. I mean, I do because I didn't. Okay. Again, okay. I didn't know about it. So it definitely felt shocking to me as a first time viewer who didn't know it was coming. So, di- what was your thought process watching it? Because I can see and it creeps into my hands like, uh, figure out a way to go back home. <laughs> Maybe that's the way. I'm conditioned to think about that thing because right. I have the privilege of being able to do something like that. Well, I do think there's a criticism that you could lob at it maybe from again from the 20 from the year 2023, you know, you could say, well, 
did we really need to kill off our female black protagonist? Like, why couldn't she just find a way out? Like, but of course we know that the, the gen- I don't think we've mentioned before, but sort of the genesis of the original novella is a new story. There, there is a sort of true to life seed that a black domestic, Senegalese domestic worker in France committed suicide in her employer's bathroom and it made the paper and it was just listed as black girl kill self or something along those lines yeah. in the French. So that's where the title, that's where the title of the film comes. That's where the novella apparently derives some inspiration. But of course, what the film does is sort of take it, you mentioned Sunset Boulevard, right? It takes it out sort of out of that noirish context where there's these detectives looking over the body of the dead black girl and saying, how do you think that happened? And then we get the flashback for how it happened. It does take it out of that and focuses it more on her, but it definitely feels grim to end on a note where our character kills herself. But I think part of what the film is successful at doing is putting us into her headspace, right? And part of that is the voiceover narration. And part of that is like her behavior, which becomes increasingly erratic to the point where like, <laughs> there's something almost kind of darkly funny about the way that her employers couldn't, can't even conceive of why she would be unhappy. They keep asking her, are you ill? Something, are you sick? Like they never even questioned the idea that she could be miserable and trapped. Um, but it puts us into as her headspace to the point where there it may, there is a dark logic to like, I need to get out of the situation and mm-hmm. I don't see a way out. So I'm just going to like take control of the situation the only way I can, which is just to, to play in my own exit. That's, that's, I think the key to it is a way of gaining or regaining a modicum of agency and power is I'm going to do it in your fucking bathtub. And and which you uh, can uh, see that it taints that space for the, yes. for the white couple for the rest of the because like she can't even go in, in that paper bathroom. and she right. looks she looks at the tub and they're like, we're going back to the car. I mean, and in then my, in my mind, when, off screen, they sell that place and never go back. Oh, of course, of course. And then someone has to explain why it's so cheap. Um <laughs> so the last five or I don't know, three minutes of this film are so heartbreaking and sort of invigorating again in this sense of it just getting to the truth where this fucking asshole goes to return her suitcase and the mask that they were gifted from Joanna uh back to Dakar to her family and of course he's haunted <laughs> <laughs> by the original owner of the mask, this young boy, who I think is credited as the mask, if I recall correctly. Some Halloween vibes there. He's just the shape. Good. He's the shape. You know what? It, it's going to follow you. And I hope it does. And I hope you... Plus the final shot, right? Like the final shot, it definitely puts a... Puts a and... uh, almost gilding the lily, really. That, that beautiful final shot of that kid lifting up the mask mm. and Letting, plus there's the music of that so we've got i do want to point out that you talked about the music and the part where the music really hits me really is the last five minutes of the film because we get that horribly ironic like upbeat cheery upbeat carnival music on the uh-huh. beach after joanna's death or just as we're learning about joanna's death where we see the this view of these french people on holiday in the riviera and then the contrast with the the traditional senegalese music that comes over that plays over that entire sequence of the Mansoor trying to like walk back to getting off, literally just getting off the pl- plane, presumably, and trying to walk uh, Joanna's possessions plus her back pay 
to her family and then failing at it and then sort of run walking out as he starts to get a bad feeling about what's this, this kid following him, this little boy following him with the mask. That's scored to that traditional, that very uh, up-tempo, but not what I would call like happy, up-tempo and intense music, almost like a thriller sequence is done. So it's very cool. I love the, I love it, particularly that last five minutes uses that musical contrast in a really strong way. Yeah, this this to me is the film that I'll be, I'm happy to be watching the rest of my life. Um, <laughs> even though I guess that sounds kind of pitiful for what it is, but I think it's just one of the great movies. Yeah, um, I mean, I loved it. I'm glad I'm glad I picked it because I feel like I'm this this does in retrospect this feels essential. Like this feels like an essential yes. African film. Yeah, and you know. I, we're not the first. We won't be the last to say it. Number, I have it pulled up. You know, I love talking sight and sound. It's my game. Um, <laughs> number ninety-five. It's in the the last group of the uh, the one hundred from critics. That's pretty I, cool, though. Was it? Was it? Was it ten years ago? Like, or was this his first appearance? You know, they changed this. And it used to be like so rich with all of these hyperlinking everywhere. It it doesn't show me. I'll find it. I'll find it and let you know. <laughs> um, but it is tied with the general. <laughs> a man escaped. Robert oh. songs. Yeah. Um, Once upon a time in the West. Tropical malady. Another uh, Josh Ray Cannon entry. And Jordan Peele's Get Out. We want to talk about some sort of bookends. Um, in <laughs> the new black film canon. I'm so glad we did this. Do we have any other thoughts about this? Let me look over my notes real fast. A ton. Um, I love that um, I'm seeing Therese Diop. Um, There's a great interview with her on the Criterion disc. Then it's probably mm -hmm. on the channel too. Um, talking about how she got involved and her, you know, she was in art school and she was focusing on fashion and visual arts. Um, a lot of the clothes that she wears in this, she actually made because she made her own clothes. Um, and the, the all of it is so good. The only thing she said that she didn't make was the polka dot dress. It was the first thing she shows up in. But um, the white with the black wavy I love, uh, style icon. Uh, and, you know, I'm not saying that glibly. That's part of the point is that she is a modern woman who right. is there's a, there's something in culture and fashion and and then when she goes to France she's um subjugated you know well it's and it's presented as visually confusing to us that she's wearing she's wearing that beautiful polka dot dress those daisy earrings the high heels while she's gloved and cleaning the the floor and right even to the point where it makes so little sense visually that the characters comment on it that the, the, the her, her employer says why are you still wearing that like fancy dress you're not going out to dinner like like even they are confused by it but of course but of course she wore that dress for as an, in, in an aspirational way like this mm. is how she envisioned that she she envisions that she will get off that boat, right? And that she's going to blend in. And she does she both blends in and sticks out. Like everything about her attire when she first gets off is fashionable. Like from her hair to those those perfect little 
flower earrings to, to the wig that she's wearing. She looks fashionable. She looks French. But yeah, also, at one point she talks about French. when she arrives, people are going to want to take her picture. Not French, know? right. Like she's actually like, there's this moment where she's almost looking around like she's expecting somebody not her employer to be waiting for her, like to take yeah. her off to the new life. And the way that he's shooting her, like is emphasizing like her glamour and her statuesque beauty. Uh, like even the way he shoots her skin is just so beautiful. Like he, he, the filmmaker clearly wants us to fall in love with her at, in this moment. And then everything else is sort of the long, slow slide from that point, from this moment oh, of cool. idealism when she literally steps off the boat. Um, the other note that I made here was that I love, like, again, it's not, it is an austere film in some ways, deliberately so, but there's so much richness to the details that he does choose to show us, such as the magazines that people are reading, the back things that are hanging on the walls in the background. I made a note that the kid, the child, children do eventually show up. The oldest boy is playing with a Zorro costume, Zorro, a famous pro-indigenous, anti-colonial <laughs> revolutionary savior figure in pop culture pulp fiction so like there's so many deliberate tiny deliberate choices in what is otherwise such a stripped down film it's really pretty remarkable so we are going to wrap up and talk a little bit more about the list from slate and npr the new black film canon we're going to give you some recommendations uh that we have from the list some films we might have covered and some things that we're looking forward to catching up with. All right, so uh, uh, the, the genesis of this project, uh, this program, was the project that NPR Slate partnered with, um, specifically put together by Aisha Harris of NPR and Dan Coyce of Slate, great writers in their own right. Um, it was a few years ago, 2014, 2017, after Get Out's great success, get together and say, uh, what we need to do is put together a guide for people as a, as the, uh, uh, as a, yeah, the title says, the new Black film canon, um, really highlighting uh, not only from a historical perspective, um, things that people should be catching up with to understand Black film culture, and Black filmmakers, um, but things that they might not know about that they are specifically fans of and are considered maybe even um, pulp hits. Um, but they've revisited it, revamped it. There's 75 instead of the initial 50. And um, there's a lot of great movies on here. Of course, the one thing I'll say is like 75 doesn't scratch the fucking surface. I could no. complain about no Bill Gunn on here. Like, I want to see personal problems. Gonja and Hess on here. Um, there's just like, you're never going to be able to do it. Looking like, you know, we're just looking at the sight and sound list, 100 movies, whatever. That's nothing. Um, but it is. But they it, did it the right way. They, they didn't They didn't redo 50. They just said, yeah, let's just expand it. They should just keep doing that. Keep expanding it. Should keep expanding it. And, you know, it, I don't know. It speaks to the cultural legacy of a lot of these films. Um, beyond black audiences, that this is still sort of capped at seventy five, or like one hundreds, kind of always the number. And but that's it, like, that's inherent in the new canon, right? That the idea is that it's not stretching back to the origins yes. of film history necessarily. But it is. That, I mean, that that makes a, that would be a good that would be a good you know companion list, though. I think like the new black, the black, the old black canon, the every you know. 
50 films pre-1975 or something like that. that I mean, really but this does stretch back to the advent of film. It starts with but Oscar Michaud. It is weighted. But let's not enough. It's very heavily weighted towards... I think my years. point is just that it is apparent by looking at something like this that even just skimming this the surface of it, right? The, the top, the greatest of it, you can see how much more active Black filmmakers are and have been allowed, I should say, to be over time, um, which is like mm-hmm. just one thing that reveals itself from this list. Uh, just interesting, puts history into perspective. But, okay, so let's take a look at the list. You can find the list on NPR and Slate. You can just Google it. There's also link in our show notes too. Um, so first, let's pick out something you'd recommend. I'll go first um, mm-hmm. because I simply just want to say the title. I guess that, that gives it away. It's uh, Symbiocyclotaxoplasm Take One. <laughs> this is one of my. This is one of my. I want to watch this film. Oh my god, Andrew, you're because you galaxy brain. You're gonna love this galaxy brain shit. It is, <laughs> you're talking about Asteroid City being like little nesting dolls of, of truth and performance. I mean, this film, <laughs> it's William Graves, a queer filmmaker and a Black queer filmmaker who's like doing this sort of experimental theater slash film work about the, the act of performance and the act of revolution. And it is just, just this mind melt. And it's incredible. It's, a, it's on a Criterion disc, it's on a Criterion Collection channel. Um, he's a filmmaker. There is a sequel, Symbiotexoplasm Take Two, that <laughs> he made some decades later, um, that even kind of furthers by commenting on the first film, furthers the kind of. Uh, sticky thicket of ideas within it but it's it's truly just an incredible film i know a friend of ours um and past and future guest kate lore uh teaches that film in her queer film class so kate um let us in let us in <laughs> and what about you what's a recommendation from you um the first thing that jumps out at me is in a like a film that i tell everybody they should see on this list is charles burnett's 1978 Killer of Sheep, which is uh, a film that's actually been I hard have to never say. seen it. You have it never seen it. To, okay. It was I have very never seen it. It so was I hard was, to see, and then it was restored, and then everyone, uh, it was like this thing like, have you seen Killer Sheep? Have you seen Killer Sheep? 2006, I think it got its yeah. first real. I mean, it's one of these exactly. things like Ar- Army of Shadows. Like the question yeah. of what year did it come out in the US is kind of confusing. Um, but I mean, it's from originally from 1978. It was, I believe, a UCLA, UCLA film project. It was just like a mm. student film, I think, or maybe a shortly after he completed his degree. Charles Burnett, um, who's made many other great films, including To Sleep With Anger, which entered the Criterion Collection recently. The issue with Killer Sheep is on this list. Yes, and also on this list. The issue with Killer Sheep is that because of musical rights issues, it's actually been hard, very hard to get. I was very fortunate that I saw a repertory screening of it years ago. Uh, I think around the time of its uh, sort of re-release in 2006. I also have a DVD of it that I somehow 
acquired from like their independent production company that was only releasing this one DVD. Um, now it's, you can actually stream it on Canopy, I believe. So if you have a library card or another access to Canopy, you can watch it at any time. This is a phenomenal film. I, it is like, to me, I think I talk about this film the way I think you've been talking about Black Girl in terms of like, this is a canon canonical American film in my mind. This is, if you want to, uh, not in the sense of like the greatest films that America ever produced, which it is, but in the sense of like, if I was trying to show to a non-American, like one of our most essential films about understanding America's fabric and America's spirit and America's grotty, nasty <laughs> underside, then this is the film. So it's an, it's, it's styled famously like a neorealist film. It's about this guy working in Watts in, 1970, in the 1970s at a slaughterhouse and the sort of bullshit that he goes through, trying to bring home money for the kids, arguing with his wife slash girlfriend, dealing with bullshit, day-to-day -day -day bullshit of being Black in America in the 1970s. It's very stripped down, very elemental, beautiful music. There's so many parts. I mean, I could talk for an hour about this movie, so I don't want to belabor it. But if you can, if you have access to Canopy, watch this movie. It's not very long. It is a absolutely, it will absolutely floor you. There's a moment in this movie that is, I consider like one of the most quietly crushing, gutting moments in American cinematic history. It also has like, I don't want to get the impression that it's an entirely Dow film. It also has like some of the most beautiful sort of erotic black love moments I've ever seen on film. It's just phenomenal. Five stars, no notes, perfect film. Why am I afraid of it? Like, what, what? what is wrong with you, Josh? When it was re-released, it just seemed like this totemic thing. And I'm, I, I, I'm don't afraid let it, of how don't let stupid that, I am. Don't let that, no, don't let the mystique of it intimidate you like it's a very yeah. it's a neorealism it's if you've seen you know the italians if you've seen it, it also sure. has some french yeah. influence in it like it you will be instantly comfortable with the style i think it's just and the, i like what charles it, burnett what it's, like showing to... us, what, what it's showing us is so unique and fantastic and indelible yeah and i like to sleep with anger a lot too that movie's fucking wild danny glover giving one of the all-time great performances i think oh, scary danny glover is a special Very <laughs> um i'm gonna go a bit more modern than my last recommendation and go with one of my favorite films unquote films ever oj made in america that's mm. ezra edelman's um what eight hour documentary about oj simpson but it's mm -hmm. also about being black in America and um the complications that arise when you become the black man of America and you are also probably allegedly a very terrible person um <laughs> who may or may not have murdered your own wife um it's it's both a true crime documentary a uh sort of history of black athletes uh in the latter half of the 20th century um it is about celebrity but it's also very specific in its details about oj simpson and i think has one of the wildest kind of epilogue codas of any film ever made in covering um the 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 post-trial years of O.J. Simpson's 
um, you know, film versus TV. I don't know. Fuck off. I don't care about that. Um, it's just one of the most staggering works of the past 10 years. Well, it says a lot that ever. they sort of they sort of threw those medium rules out the window and, and added yeah. it to this list because it was yeah. the deals such like a towering piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. And it's I don't know, Disney Plus or something. Digital purchase, but <laughs> I have it on Blu-ray. <laughs> physical media meathead that I am. Anyway, yeah, there's a movie you knew was great that I just said was great. <laughs> what about you, Andrew? You have another recommendation? Um, I'm going to go with not not something not that obscure, but I think that I feel like people, I still need to direct people to it, which is uh, John Singleton's 1991 film, Boys in the Hood, mm. which was a film that is a film that I think its current reputation is sort of that it was the first and most important of a wave of sort of hood movies based in South Central or other black American neighborhoods in the 1990s that followed similar vibes, similar plots, similar soundtracks. But I do think that that somewhat undersells how timeless and important the same time Singleton's film is. Singleton, who of course died so young now, I feel like it's, its reputation has sort of swollen in my mind. Um, maybe and he one was of a my child when he made it too. Twenty four, nominated, nominated for best director mm, at twenty four. Can you fucking believe yeah. that? No. <laughs> maybe my maybe my favorite Lawrence Fishburne performance of all times, and he's not the even great. the main character. Furious Styles, one of the great TV, one of the great movie dads of all time. Um, Angela Bassett doing the Angela thing. Angela Bassett, um, Cuba. I, yeah. Well, we won't talk about him, but but. Irrespective of everything else, I think the thing that really resonates about this movie, I've seen it maybe half a dozen times, I loved it when I was younger, especially, is that it, you know, I'm a white dude who was not, you know, particularly seduced by Black culture in the 1990s, but this movie, and another one on this list uh, that I can talk about, House Party, like, uh, those are movies I watched over and over and over and over as a teen. Um, and just, so there's something about Boys in the Hood that really works well. And I think, having grown older now, it's it works for the same reason that like the Warner Brothers gangster films of the 1930s work. It works because it, it is that kind of movie. It works for the same, you know, in a weird way. It's a I, I tried to get out kind of gangster film in some ways. It it has parallels with, you know, um, Body and Soul, you know, boxing <laughs> great like mm -hmm. boxing movies. It has parallels with Carlito's Way. Like there's this. It's it's just a great movie about a guy not knowing who he is being surrounded by good and bad influences the complicated loyalties that he feels to these different people it's it's timeless it's a great it's, portrait it's, so it's, of family too both like your right. bio family and the found and family. extended family yeah. and extended family um the people you feel loyalty with in a way that gang life in particular muddies those boundaries about who and who is not your brother it's just, it's, it's something that feels so, so specific to 1991 and yet also feels like something that could have been made 70 years ago in terms of its themes and psychological contours. I just love it. I, it's a film that I always love revisiting. And I, I, it, despite its reputation and it's, you know, he had, he had an Oscar nomination for it. I feel like not enough people talk about it today. It's like one of the giants and it, it really is. I think it gets conflated with, um, Boys in the Hood, not Boys. Minister Society from Minister. See exactly, um, and yeah, the 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 whole wave of like you 
but a hood. And there were many good movies in that current, I think, and also some bad ones, but I think Boy sort of stands alone as its own thing. Yeah, and it's also sort of riding a wave of of new black cinema, like not like this new black film canon, right? Am I putting emphasis on where? No, that's I know what describing? you're saying. That Singleton okay. was often described in the same breath with Lee at the time, Spike Lee. So I think right. that we, if you were around in the nineties, you you are aware of something happening in independent American cinema at that time. Well, there's a a just like a plethora of great things on here honestly of the things i've seen i don't know that there's anything i don't like well then i scrolled by that anyway um (laughs) (laughs) um i you bring up spike lee that's why is he such a blind spot for me i mean i've seen half of his films but i Mm -hmm. feel like i should have seen all of them they're always like sort of regardless or of their um quality they're always exciting um yeah even i think that's true. even something true. like when he makes a, a like pure genre exercise as people would call it something like inside man it's so sharp and so smart and exhilarating we don't um, talk about the old boy remake though right i haven't seen it also mm-hmm. haven't seen old boy anyway I'm confessing Whoa. a lot of things. Oh my gosh, that that yeah. feels like yeah. <laughs> Feel weird. I hang on. I need to process this. You've never seen Old Boy, okay? Never, um, nope, nope, nope. No, I I agree, and I think there's a lot of. Have you seen? So one of the, his lesser films that I don't think enough people talk about is his Million Man March film, Get on the Bus. Have you seen that? I've not. That is a great film. Great film, Lee film. Great film and a great Lee film, in particular that I don't think enough people talk about. To me, that's top like top third Spike Lee film. And as you would probably expect with something like this, there's uh, he's well represented on this mm-hmm. list. Um, Do the Right Thing, which is a fucking masterpiece. Malcolm X, which is a fucking masterpiece. Um, Mo Better Blues is one Kirkland's I have on not too, seen. Yeah. yeah, and so those three, Kirkland, 25th Hour, and Mo Better Blues, those are excited. all excellent. I have there's yeah. a bunch of his films. I haven't seen a lot of his early films either. So, but I have I have seen those, and the Kirkland in particular is really fascinating because it's totally so different than so many of his other films. Um, yeah. What about you? What are you one, gonna do? The big ones for me, yeah, the big ones for me are the early stuff. Like I've never seen Within Our Gates, which is sort mm. of their first, their one like early film, 1920 film on here. Um, I mentioned Symbiopsychotaxoplasm on here earlier earlier the learning i've never seen the learning tree 1969 gordon park so there's a lot of older stuff out here that i need to hit yeah a lot of that stuff i mean the whole one of the other things about this list is that these are films that are accessible to everyone um as of the writing of this list (laughs) you know that changes all the time or you could just go buy discs you know no but i think that's very helpful in things forever i don't see enough I don't see enough listicles and like that's unfortunately what a lot of our current cultural criticism landscape consists of is listicles and whatnot. But I don't see enough of them do what this list does provide specifically geared its list towards accessibility, also provide a link for every damn movie that says this is where you can find it right yeah. now. Which yeah. I think is like in this landscape where we can at any time we can choose what we want to watch and go out and follow that rabbit hole i think it's really valuable to have that so kudos on the editors here for doing exactly what needed to be done 
Yeah, and um, I mean, the results should say that the contributors to the results are like a who's who of uh, great film writers, but also great filmmakers. Ava DuVernay, Carl Franklin, uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. I mean, Odie Henderson's a great critic, but this is just a great little piece to have bookmarked and to put these things on yeah. your watch list and then fucking watch them and, you know, learn about them. Like every program we do. <laughs> Speaking of which, our next program is going to be it's like we have a guide for this one too it's all about the films quentin tarantino writes in his essay book there it is mr orange cinema speculation that came out was published um late last year late last year early this year that's cinema speculation he's writing about uh a lot about exploitation and new hollywood films american cinema of 1960s 70s really when he was growing up and finding his cinephilia. And it's a it's a autobiographical work, but it's also a work of film criticism. So uh, we're going to have, uh, you know, one of our, I guess we could both call him a mentor. Cliff Freilich's going to be on here, former executive director of Cinema St. Louis. Helps edit, edit the take up. He's going to come on. We're going to talk about Paul Schrader. And then, of course, Andrew and I are going to pick something. Anyway, Andrew, do you have one more thing? Um, yeah, I'm gonna. I don't. I'm kind of a movie, more of a movie guy than a TV music guy. But I'm gonna recommend a, something at the confluence of those, which is Daniel Pemberton's new score, not soundtrack, but score for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is a phenomenal piece of movie music. Um, I've been listening to it nonstop for about a week now. Um, so Pemberton also composed the uh, soundtrack to Into the Spider-Verse, which was very good. We talked about that film just a few weeks ago. Um, I was like, I know this name. This name's on the tip of my tongue. Why Daniel Pitt? Why do I know him? Fucking idiot. Yeah, you're right. Good music. <laughs> good music. Um, <laughs> but the work he's doing on the new film is really extraordinary. I think it's, I say this unironically, and not, I didn't say this as somebody who doesn't reflexively think we need more comic book movies and awards movies discussions we do not but um this is one that i think unironically and unbiasedly needs to be in discussion for one of the great scores of 2023 so far it is uh the things that he's doing in here i'm not a music guy so i can't describe them from a musicology perspective but um the way he creates about like half a dozen different character themes that all are sort of in conversation with each other and echoing each other without necessarily doing the same thing emotionally or tonally um it's just really extraordinary i went and saw the film for a second time on friday i think one of the few films i've seen twice this year specifically so i could sort of just sit and luxuriate in that score um so i do highly recommend it pretty much available everywhere you get your uh, albums um i don't it's Big enough, and I think it's been a big enough hit critically and commercially, the soundtrack that is, that it's probably going to get the inevitable, like, lush vinyl release if you're into vinyl. Um, so highly, highly recommend it. Great, just really great superhero. I would put it in, like, top five great superhero score specifically up there with uh, James Newton Howard's incredible work on Unbreakable, which is a completely different animal than this, but um, similarly great understanding 
the tone and vibe that a superhero story should have in a way that a thousand mediocre, endlessly forgettable MCU scores have completely like just whiffed. Complete whiffs. Mm. Complete sniff of shits. Oh, how about sorry. how about you? Anything else <laughs> Wait, to recommend? Where, where can that people find you? Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh you can find me at Letterbox at AY at 76. Perfect. I will stick with music. Um uh, there's been like a, a glut of good music coming out lately. Um uh, over mono album album by james ivy a friend turn me on to jesse ware's album this is like a lot of dancey stuff there's great new youth lagoon album uh anoni has an album coming out yeah i'm just looking at my recently added stuff but like this i'm re-excited about music however i mean it's been 10 years since jay paul's album leaked do you remember are you familiar with jay paul I would I don't know names like so you would have to play a few bars literally for me to understand what you're talking I'll try about. to figure out how to do that. But this was, an, he had a, a single, a couple of singles, uh, BTSU and Jasmine before in 2013. I remember the day this album leaked online and everyone was crediting it to him and suggesting that maybe he had put it out himself because it'd been such a torturous journey for this album to come out. And everyone was ecstatic over this thing. Um, Turns out someone stole his laptop, put his album out there on the internet, oh my and God. it became a critical um, sensation. And it's just a really magical um, piece of pop music. Um, the leaked version was the only version that was out for a very long time uh, until he put it out himself as um, leaked 413 uh, parentheses bait ones. <laughs> Um, but it's still just one of the great records, I think, of the 2010s. Um, it contains the two singles that I mentioned. It also has uh, uh, one of the great songs of the 2010s. That's track two or straight out of Mumbai. His uh, Indian producer and uh, singer songwriter, but he's also uh, all of his music's very sample heavy, but it's also very seductive and danceable. And I listened to it again yesterday and was like. 10 years of this album should i Wait, write so I have a to little ask. anniversary piece for pitchfork yeah. yeah you should um so i have to ask like just as because i'm always interested in these ideas of distribution and commercialism in the 21st century mm -hmm. so do we know if he ever sort of recovered financially from that leak like was he able to he, he couldn't from sales he couldn't have he's also someone who's notoriously um a hermit <laughs> like he has since released i believe two singles or a single with an a and a b side um, in 10 since years 2013 and he wow. also recently played coachella for mm. the first time and it was a huge deal because he's not someone who performs live and he does some producing i'm not really familiar with wow. the sort of 
outreach that he has. JD Salinger um, vibes here. It is, <laughs> it is very much that of like um, indie music on the internet in the 2010s. It is very JD Salinger. Um, but it is available to stream. That's Jay Paul's uh, leaked ones, 413. No, leaked 413 bait ones. <laughs> So why also, are you revisiting it because it was just recently released or this is just an idiot like you just happened? No, nah, that shit popped up and I was like, I'm going to listen to that whole <laughs> album. Track two is like one of my most, most listened to songs ever, I think. And uh, it's just like this burst of joy. Um, yeah. Yeah. If you were to, if you're a DJ, please put that on <laughs> so that I can, and I'm talking loudly so my boyfriend hears it, who is a DJ. And I'm Joshua Ray at Crispy Retinas all over the socials. I'm thinking which ones am I on? Letterboxd, Instagram, Twitter. But uh, you can find all of us at the Take Up STL all over social media. And of course, go read our words. Uh, Kayla McCullough just uh, published a feature on the use of the song um, Blue Moon in Great film. Feature. And it's just, uh, of course, uh, another banger from McCullough. Um, yeah. And uh, that's the take-up.com. The next time you hear from us, Cliff Freilich will be with us to talk about a couple of films from Quentin Tarantino's pseudo-autobiography film <laughs> essay. You know, how do you describe describe his work so it'll be a good time for us to talk about film criticism film as criticism and qt of course and uh yeah the only people who love naval nasal getting more than tarantino himself are film critics right so right. we love talking right. about ourselves oh and i can't wait to talk dish on his supposed last film the movie critic yeah you seen Tarantino? all right Oh, until until then, um, support your local film criticism. Mm-hmm.